Uh, there's a secret that if, if you've been around pastors or speakers, there's this uncompe- unspoken competition that happens, and I think you all need to be aware of it. Um, uh, we don't make a big deal of it. Tyler over here has been a pastor for a while. He knows about it. Anyone who has spoken knows about it. It's a bit nerdy. Uh, it's very nerdy. Uh, if you could take a message, a sermon like this, uh, an email, uh, even a text message, and make all of your points start with the same letter, you win. Right? Am I right? It, absolutely. Uh, it, it, it's, it, it's incredible. And if, uh, if the whole message comes out alliterated, like all your points are there, and then your title is the same one, then you get the $10 million bonus point, and you are forever the champion. It's, it's great, especially if you can use the letter Q. Because how many words start with Q? Not very many, especially to make an outline for it. And if there's one person in the Bible who has done this or who is the greatest of all times, the Tom Brady, if you will. I know Tom Brady's a sore subject around here, but he is the greatest. Uh, uh, if he's the goat, it's the writer David. David is the champion of alliteration. Uh, many people have a difficult time understanding this, but if you open your Bibles and look at Psalm 119, you see the very thing that got him this prize. Uh, some critics have called this psalm very empty. Uh, they, they don't even think it should darken the scriptures. It's just a weird thing. They, they'll look at it and go, it doesn't even belong in here. It's artificial piety. Uh, and yet, it is when you look at it, when you pay attention to it, it is one of the most beautifully written psalms in the entire book. And it's all alliterated. And it's all having to do with God's law. God's law is referred to 149 times throughout the psalm. I counted it on Tuesday. David uses different titles like Torah or decrees or commandments, precepts, laws, or even words or statutes to talk about how good it is to follow in the ways of the Lord. It's the longest psalm in the psalms. This is probably why a lot of people don't want to read it. It's 176 verses, which makes psalms like Psalm 23 that has eight kind of seem easy. I mean, you want a psalm a day, and it's the 119th day of the year, and you're stuck on this one. It's like, oh boy, this is going to be a while. Each of these psalms, there's 22 sections, one section for every Hebrew letter. And if you look in your Bible, mine has little tags, like this section is for Aleph, which is their A. This section is for Bet, which is their B. There's 22 of them because they don't have a lot of the same letters that we have. Each of the 22 sections is formed into eight verses. And every eight verse is rather symbolic. What happens on the eighth day when we celebrate Hanukkah? The festival of lights. It's a reminder. It's the festival of booths that, that reminded that on the eighth day we celebrate what God has done for us in coming from Egypt. Seven days they stayed outside in, in little tents and on the eighth day they partied. And so it's an example and all of it is rich in the text of how good God's ways are. How good God has been. And again, Every single section is alliterated. Here's what I mean. The first section is called the Aleph section, and I think there's a slide for this. Aleph is the letter A, and if you, and if you look, is it going to come up? If not, that's okay. I can draw it. I'll draw it. Oh, there it is. I thought it was going to be up there. I have a cheat screen back there for all of you who know. So this is the first one. That's the letter A. All eight verses begin with the letter A. Aleph, it's the sound ah. Okay, really hard. Aleph. And so that's all eight verses. Then you get to the letter B, and I don't have one for this, but it starts with the letter B. Every single line 
of the verse, or of the section, all eight of them. And he does it for 22 of them. It's not merely a scholastic gamesmanship, but it was deliberately chosen by the author as an appropriate way of, of a theological intention for his poem. We could nerd out on this a long time, but what David's doing is for every letter of the Hebrew alphabet, from A to Z, he's showing us about a life that is filled with God. Psalm 119 is a beautiful picture of a life deeply formed by God's words, and that life then becomes an example to others. What we see is David able to embody the life that, he, that God has intended for him by following God's teachings. And when he does so, his life becomes the example to all others of what it's like to live a life honoring to the Lord. And so David, in the Psalms, gives us three examples that I want us to look at, uh, at how to do this. And, and the, they're three S's. <laughs> Come on, you've got to see that. It's alliterated, three S's. Uh, three S's. The first one is that, is that David allows the Scriptures to shape him. The second one is that David allows uh, the Scriptures to sustain him. And then David allows the Scriptures to send him. So let's look at verses 9 through 16. In this section, David speaks about how the Word of God has changed him. Verse 9, how can a young person stay on a path to purity? David opens this section by simply asking a question. How do we stay on the right path? The word for path is usually a term that's used metaphorically, and it means this journey in life, and we use it all the time. This is my path in life. So the question is, how do we stay on the right path? The answer comes later in verse 9, where it says, by living according to the word. Now, the word for word is word. It's the word debarred. I've used word a lot right there. It means word. But it also could be used as a term that means a revelation from God. In the, uh, the Ten Commandments, we call, them the, the, we call them the Ten Commandments in Exodus. They show up in Deuteronomy as well. But the word for them is the Ten Words, the Debarim, which is plural for words. It also means, when you use the word Debar, about a direct communication from God himself. And so what David is, this entire section, what David is doing is he frames this with God's word. If I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways, I delight in your decrees, in verse 16, then I will not neglect your word. In verse 11, Dave said, David says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Everything that David is doing in this section has to do with orienting his life around the words of God. He's hidden God's words in his heart, not just to hide them away so no one could see him. What David is really getting at is he's put his words in the very place where it can change his life. It's not just memory like you're going to take a final we all did in college or still doing in college where you take the final and then forget about it all. No, these become shaping his life. They become what shapes him. In verse 13, with my lips, I recount all the laws that have come from your mouth. I rejoice following your statues as one rejoices in great riches. And here's why this matters. David is, is examining all of the ways that we could live our lives or that he could live his life, the dozens and hundreds of voices that are shaping him and goes, I'm not going to listen to all of those. I'm going to listen to your words. And we have the same challenge that David does. 
We have messages all around us that tell us what to value, who to value, what to pursue, and which things will bring life and joy and happiness. And those different messages will inform our beliefs and they inform our values. Yet here's the issue. None of those ways, none of those paths, will bring us life. The, they might offer a path, they might offer something that looks good, they might offer something that looks fun, and something that we might want to pursue, but it won't lead us to the right place. A few weeks ago, I started taking my boys uh, to Boeing Creek. Have any of you been up to Boeing Creek? Uh, there's a bunch of, uh, I, I know you go there, it's pretty awesome, but there's a bunch of trails, it's like hiking, and then there's a fancy that, Boeing Creek, there's a creek that goes in the middle of it. And so we'll start at one end of the park, last time we went, and I said to them, you pick the way, guys. And so they just started walking. Hey, Dad, here's a trail, and they go up this trail, then they go down this trail, they want to go up the hill, they want to go, really, what they're trying to do is they want to go stand in the creek. And I, if they can find it, I let it happen. But they just kind of wander. And then after about an hour, they're getting tired, I'm getting cranky, what, or one of those, or vice versa. And I say, okay, guys, let's find our way home. You show me the way home. And if they were paying attention, they know that the path that we were just on can lead us all the way back to the car. But they weren't, because they're six and, and three. But, and so they start taking any path that comes their way. And one goes 10 feet and stops at a tree. One goes to the edge, and it's like a cliff straight down. That one worried me. Mom wasn't there, so we didn't talk about that one. But, but uh, what they're doing is they're taking the wrong path. All of them looked great. All of them looked fun. But a lot of them went the wrong direction. And this is what David's saying. There are 20 paths that we can take in our life. One of them is right. And if I allow the words of the Lord to shape my path, my path will be made straight. My path will be made right. This might be what David's talking about. He had the chance to follow other paths. And at times in his life, he did. He followed the path of lust that led to Bathsheba. He followed the path that led to essentially a civil war. He followed the path, and he found out that that was a dead end. And in hindsight, David says, my paths, the ones that I come up with by myself, aren't very good. But the ones that you come up with, Lord, the ones that flow from your mouth, your debar, your debarim, those ones lead to life. And Jesus talks about this, right? He says, I'm the way, the truth, the life. I'm the path to peace. David becomes very selective over what paths he will take. When David's hidden God's word in his heart, he's saying, I'm going to be very careful that I'm going to have those ways, a map that's internalized that shows me which ways to go and which ways to not go. I mean, honestly, we have a difficult time with this, right? Uh, perhaps, I mean, I do. Uh, we, we, we see God's way of doing life, and then we see everybody else's way of doing life, and what do, we use, what do we do? Usually, we'll go with, or at least me, the temptation, and, and I fall to it often, is to go with the other way, the way that culture leads us. It's easy to allow culture to shape you. It's easy to get swept away down those paths and rather than to let God shape you and to go down his path. And here's what I mean. Most of the time, we have no problem doing what people tell us to do, right? If your doctor says you have to do this, what do you do? That. If your therapist tells you that you need to shape your life in this way, hopefully, if, if you like your therapist, 
you'll do this. If they say you're doing this, you'll do that. If you have people in your life that tell you what to do, usually you'll follow them. We have laws in our nation that tell us, do this. And most of us have no problem going, okay, I'll do that. I'm not going to rob somebody. I'm not going to kill somebody. Those seem fair. I'm not going to do it. If God tells you to do something, what do we do? Uh, Maybe not. Right? God says, don't hold resentment. Oh, but you don't know what they did to me. God God says, hey, uh, sex, marriage, that's, that's where it ends. That's where it should be. And we go, yeah, but have you seen them? Them? Have you seen them? Come on. Can we, can we at least fudge on this one? God says this is the right way of living. And immediately when he says that, we go, yeah, but why is that? Why can we follow everything else to a T, but the moment God says something, we look for a way out? It's the same thing that we've done ever since the beginning of time, right? God says to Adam and Eve, all of this is yours except for that tree. And what's the temptation? Did God really mean that? Is that what he meant? No, I mean, that was a long time ago. There's been like 3,000 years since then, and, and a lot of the words have changed. Did he really mean that? Yes, he did. We like to find the wiggle room, and we do it with everything from our identity to our sexual relationships to our relationships to our bodies to our commitments. You name it, what God says it, we'll question it. If somebody else says it, we buy it. Hook, line, and sinker. It's an old pattern. How close to the edge can we get? And in doing so, we're taking a wrong path. We're becoming more shaped. We're becoming more shaped by culture than we are shaped by God's word. And many of us are going down the wrong ways. I feel it's time for us to begin to be shaped back by God's words instead of other people's words. And that's the challenge because when you allow the word of God to shape you, when you allow the word of God to be indwelt in your life, when the code of ethics is based on what we see in scripture, what Jesus teaches, and we see it and we accept it and we live by it, you're going to be the minority. Culture is going to look at you and go, you're doing what? I don't know how many people looked at me funny when I told them that Carrie and I were not going to sleep together until we were married. We were the weird ones. But that's the way God intended it to be. I'm glad we did. When you take God's path, you might be the only one on the path, but at least you're on the right path. Jesus says in Matthew, the the path to destruction is broad, and there's a lot of people on it. But the path to life is narrow. Few people find it. But it's the right path. We allow the word of the Lord to shape us. We'll find ourselves guided by his words on the right path that leads to wholeness and life rather than to destruction. David gives us an example of what that means to be shaped by God's word. His life becomes the example of how he allowed the word to shape him. And then, he's a, and then because of this, when he experiences difficulties, the word gives him strength. So you have shape, and then it gives him strength. God's word sh- uh, strengthens him. Look in verse 6. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider 
all of your commands. David, uh, one of the critiques of this, when you look at the verses around it, is that they think that David is living in this Pollyanna-type universe where if he follows God, everything goes right. But there's specific verses in here when he says, do not put me to shame, Lord. I'm following your commands. And it says, it shows us that David is experiencing some pushback on how to live his life. David is giving some difficulties that he's coming across. It reminds us that no matter how many times we do the right thing, David still does the right thing and trouble finds him. It's not that you do the right thing and hopefully you can go out and find some trouble. No, you do the right thing and trouble's going to make your way to you just like it does everybody else. But when it does, because you find yourself on the right path, shaped by God's word, you can find strength in the middle of those hardships. Verse 21, you rebuke the arrogant who are accursed, those who stay stray from your commands. Remove me from their scorn and contempt. I keep your statutes. He's alluding that they don't. Though rulers sit together and slander me, your servant will meditate on your decrees. What David is saying is that these people are the ones who are plaguing him. They're pursuing his life. They're threatening him, his well-being. Apparently, it's gotten to the point where David says in verse 19, he's a stranger where he lives. He can't even be comfortable at home to this point. It's a cosmic claim. He no longer feels uh, safe. And the word that he uses is the word aretz, which means earth. He no longer feels safe anywhere on the earth. In verse 25, he says, I'm laid low in the dust. Preserve me, preserve my life according to your word. What David is saying poetically, of course, is that his life is like cleaning to the dust and that he is so weary and sorrow strengthen him. David recognizes that in this world that we live in, it's dis- disordered, it's hostile, it's menacing, and it's difficult. And he experiences everything that we experience in the difficult situations. I don't know about you, but when I'm in those times, it feels like the world's collapsing on me. Have you ever noticed that when when you have an anxiety attack or when everything's happening to you, you feel like you're pushed down? Is it just me? You have a hard time breathing. Uh, It feels like you have zero space. It's almost like you get claustrophobic. We call it the pressure cooker. We call it trapped. Uh, we, we say that every, uh, everything is closing in on me. We use this idea that, that we are being squished. This is what David's saying. The panic attack has come. Everyone's closing in on me. I no longer feel comfortable on this earth. I'm squished. I'm being squashed here. Have you been there? David has. And there's really no worse place we could ever be. He's been there a few times probably. The day that he challenged Goliath, I bet he looked at what happened and he likes to glorify the story, but put yourself in David's shoes. You're a little frightened. This guy could literally squish you and you're going to go after it. Or the time he was hiding from Saul in the caves, Saul's throwing spears at him and what's David doing? Hiding, running for his life. There was a time where David played like he was crazy so the people in the village wouldn't bother him. They're like, oh, that guy's lost his mind. Let's let him live. David has experienced this. He knows the feeling about being closed in on. There's other people in the scriptures that feel it too. In Exodus 33, we see Moses having the same problem that David has. He goes, Lord, what are you doing with these people of yours? I have nowhere to go. You take them. I'm done. Uh, Paul has the same, same experience in 2 Corinthians. He says, 
I've been pressed on every side. I've been shipwrecked. I've been put to death. I've escaped this. He lists a whole list, and there's a song written about it. But he's pressed. He's, he's pushed to the limit. He would rather die, and he says, but I have you. He's being squashed. Jesus, as he kneels in the Garden of Gethsemane before he dies or goes to be crucified, says the same thing. Take this cup from me. I don't want it anymore. This is when he sweats blood. And in each of these situations, whether it's Moses, Paul, David, or others, Daniel felt this. What they do is they find strength in God's words. In verse 32, I run in the path of your commands, for you have broadened my understanding. So in this section, you see that life circumstances are squeezing him down the funnel, and then he runs in the paths of the commands, and the word that's being used is this wide-open spaces that he experiences because he's able to be strengthened by the word of the Lord. David goes from being hemmed in to running on a path. He goes from a tight place to a broad understanding. And there's a change that takes place when David realizes where his deliverance comes from. God's word doesn't keep the difficulties away from you. But God's word reminds you of where your stabilizing force comes from. God's word reminds you that you could be steadfast in the middle of them and gives you a proper way to navigate them. In verse 165, great peace have those who love your law and nothing can make them stumble. It's going to be about 14 years in a couple weeks where my family's house burnt down in California. It's crazy to think that that was so long ago, but that's happened. And when it happened, we had zero time to get out. Just like a wildfire in California, they blow with the wind and they can be on you from five miles in about three minutes. And that's about the time that we had. So we lost everything that day. And here's why I tell the story. A few days later, my dad was out of town, so I'm sitting in front of our house. We're doing a cleanup, and, uh, and, and the CNN news truck comes by. This was national news. This was my big debut, right? And so they come, and they want to talk to people who have lost their home, and they come and talk to me. And I don't know if this got aired. I wish it did so I could have it on my reel. But they said, what are you going to do? And I, I remember looking at them going, we're going to rebuild it's going to be fine. We're good. I don't know where that came from. If they would have asked me probably six hours before that, I probably would have wept on film and it would have been on every newspaper, right? But instead, what had happened is I was able to talk with my family. My friends, Carrie was there. And the reminder was, yes, this is difficult. Yes, everything has burnt down. But we can find hope that God is going to lead us through. And where do we find that hope? Scripture never leaves you stranded. And the, the news reporter looked at me and went, I don't get it. You lost everything. And I said, it's just stuff. Under my breath, it's like, yeah, but it was my guitar. It was my baseball cards. It was everything, right? My books. But it is just stuff. It gives you a perspective that when life goes awry, you are okay. That the Lord will sustain you. And if you're not on the right path, what happens when things go wrong? You don't have that. You don't have that security. God's word shapes David. God's word strengthens David. And then God's word finally, the last S, and I should get some points for this, God's word sends David. 
If you've been tracking with us these past two weeks, you know that we're in our Gather, Grow, Go series. And you might be wondering, what the heck does this all have to do with Go, right? It's a great question. And if you're wondering, I'm, I'm going to show you. Uh, when we talk about Go, there's usually a lot of pushback on it. Because the moment we say Go, we instantly start thinking, oh, we've got to tell people about Jesus. And then automatically walls go up. Why? Because it's uncomfortable. There's an image that flashes in my mind whenever someone says, it's time to tell people about Jesus. The image that flashes is the dude down at the stadium, probably this afternoon, with the big yellow sign that says, you're all going to hell. And I look at that and go, well, I don't want to be that guy. We've seen him. If you haven't seen him, he stands on the corner and, and, you know, I, I have to admire him because if I'm honest, he's doing more to share his faith than I am at this moment. And so I have to commend him for that. Do I like his method? No, I'm not going to stand on a corner and read Romans 1 with a bullhorn. That's not what I'm going to do. At the same time, we look at that and go, well, then I'm not going to do anything. And so what do we do? We retreat and we tell no one about our faith. And we hide. And both of those extremes don't work. You can't be a jerk about it. Yet, we're told very specifically, go. Share your faith. Tell people about this. So we have to be able to find a middle ground of in sharing our faith. And just as important as gathering is for all of us to be here on a Sunday morning or in a, a small group, just as important as growing in your faith is, and I hope you saw some of the small groups that we're offering now so you can do that, the third leg of the stool is, but we have to also tell people about Jesus. You can't take that one away because it makes you feel uncomfortable. We gather and we grow, and then the outpouring of both of those is that we go. Going is the primary role of the church. In Matthew 8, 28, 19 and 20, it says, Therefore go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the end of the age. And so we read this, and this is the first thing. There's a checklist, right? Well, we have to make disciples. We have to get our discipleship programs running. And so church people and Christians go, we need to have this many classes and this many small groups and this and this and this. And we throw the checklist up. We have to make sure people are educated, especially in the right theology. Heaven forbid they disagree with us. And then we have to have the right doctrines. And maybe if we're lucky, we're going to have the same songs. So we all know the words that we're going to say. Then the next checklist, we have to make sure we baptize everyone. Not that baptism is wrong, not that discipleship is wrong. Baptism is beautiful and one of the few things that will make me cry every time I see it. But we can't begin to use it as a checklist. And if we do so, we're missing the beauty of it. Then we tend to skip over the whole Trinity thing because that's weird, but it's important. But we kind of go, I don't understand that. And then we get down to more teaching and more obeying and more telling people what we should do. And all of these are good and there's value in every single one of them. There's value in discipleship. There's value in correct teaching. There's value in having programs that encourage us to walk in Christ. Those are all great. But I want to point out that we're so quick to jump to those metrics that we forget the very first command. Go. Get up and get out. Get stepping. There's more than these two words, therefore go. There's a whole verse in front of it. That's why the therefore is therefore. But what we see in those two words, therefore go, is the embodiment of Psalm 119 that David eventually gets to. 
What Jesus says in the verse before him is this, Then Jesus came to me them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Jesus first says this thing about authority. And it's important because the authority that Jesus has is the one who is risen, the one who embodies the very life of God, the one who's defeated death, the one who looks at everything that's holding the world back and says, I won. I own that. That life that God has promised, the life that God has wanting every single one of these to live, I have. And on my authority, I'm telling you to therefore go. Live that life. Live the life that you were meant to live. Because Jesus has been given the authority, we have the freedom to do just as what he tells us in verse 19. Go. But it's not just a one-time issue, this going. The Greek word is pereo, which is used for a specific verb verb tense that means it's more than just a one-time effort. Rather, it's an ongoing action. It's something that you're already doing. It's, It's forever a part of you. Therefore, go on and live your life continuing to go. It's... It's better than a cleverly worded argument. It's, it's way better than those tracks that look like dollar bills that we used to put in the check when we paid at the restaurants. Way better than those. It's a lot better than the signature at the end of your email or the post that you put that on Facebook that says, like this if you like Jesus. And if you don't like Jesus, skip it. But it's better than all of those. It's rather saying, live your life shaped by the word of God. Live your life finding stability in his promises. And when you do that, you'll have no problem being the example of the life that Jesus gives us to the people around you. Live your life, Jesus says. Your life is renewed. Your life is revitalized. Your life is repurposed. All of those are ours. I get more points. But it's all done in the power of the risen Christ to to change the world around you. And all you have to do to accomplish this is live. As you're living your everyday normal life, teach people about Jesus. As you're living your everyday normal life, disciple people in the ways of Christ. As you're living your everyday normal life, baptize them. And this is the trick. Baptism means that they're going from one way of life to another way of life, which means that you've had to talk to them about your way of life along the point or along the way because there's a change that comes. Your life should be one that is so intriguing that people want to, excuse me, people want to live like you do. They want to know the message of Jesus. And this is what David begins to embody in Psalm 119. He allows God's laws to be rooted in him so that he becomes the message. You then become the very light of Jesus to a world that is in deep need of Christ. Look what he says in Psalm 119.45. I will walk in your freedom for I have sought out your precepts. I will speak of your statutes before kings and will not be put to shame. I delight in your commands because I love them. He's living his life. He's speaking about what shapes him so much. And other people are starting to catch on. 
I will walk in the open spaces, he says. It's the same type of word that is used in go. It's one of those that I will continue to do this all the days of my life. I will continue to walk in freedom. And he's speaking in front of kings, and so he will continue to speak the ways of the Lord in front of them. Verse 54, your decrees are the theme song of wherever I lodge. However many of you have ever wondered, if I had a theme song, it would be this. I do. I can't tell you what it is right now because it changes. But if I was a closer in baseball, it would be like a Josh Groban song just to like throw everyone off, right? It's this tense situation and all of a sudden you have, you lift me up when I can walk on mountains coming out to be the closer. Okay, we all have this idea. Who's going to be your, the guy who narrates or the woman who narrates your life when the movie's made about you? We think about this. I think about this. I'll just say I think about this. And what David's saying is, I want the word of God to be my theme song. So when I walk into a room, like Kramer walks into a room on Seinfeld, everyone knows what the door looks like. I walk into a room, the theme song that hits is the word of the Lord. It becomes the marker of who I am. May those, in verse 79, may those who fear you turn to me, those who understand your statutes. I want people to come to me, David says, so that they can understand what the Lord is about. That's some kind of example to live, right? Verse 171, I might, may my lips overflow with your praise, for you teach me your decrees. May my tongue sing of your word, for all your commands are righteous. In other words, may the law of the Lord be present wherever I go. What we see in this psalm is, is this alliterated life that David has. Everything about him is saturated with the word of the Lord. And because of that, his life becomes the message. Every aspect of David's life is filled with God's command. And it's no mistake then that he uses the alphabet to do so. Everything about me, including the letters that I use to form the words that come from my mouth, are so drenched in the ways of God that they show people who he is. My entire life, from A to Z, is filled with Christ so that people can come to know him. This is what it means to go. And so what would it look like for us to follow this same pattern of David's life? That our life would be so saturated with the things of the Lord that people are drawn to the Lord. Well, first, it goes back to the beginning. Start doing what he says. Hide God's word in your heart. Follow his commands. Allow the word of the Lord to change you, to grab your heart, and, and be open to the change. This is the hard part, right? Um, I don't, we, we will come to Christ, and, and Paul says we, we were to be transformed, not to conform, but this transforming part's hard, because in order to be transformed to the person of Jesus, I have to let go of all these other things, and I kind of like all of these other things, but I'm supposed to do this. And so Paul and David are saying, let go of them. Stop it. If you want to be transformed, if you want your life to be a message to the people around you, if you want your life to sing of the goodness of God, then... You have to let go of some things, and that's the, hard, that's the difficult part. But it's worth it. Follow God's commands. Never mind what the mainstream is telling you to do. 
in order to follow the pattern, we need to follow his, his laws. What would it look like for, God, for us to be shaped by God's laws instead of questioning them? One of my favorite things is when I ask my kids to go get their polyps on to go to bed is, is they actually do it, which happens maybe once a week. But it is so relaxing when I say, okay, or Carrie will say, all right, pull up some PJs, let's go. And then they go up and they do it and they get in bed. It's like, oh my goodness, what just happened? But last night and the night before and the night before that and the night before that, it was no. And that has led to a whole bunch of other things. And, and it, it, it didn't go well. Our lives will go better if we say, okay, Lord, this is what you say. It's going to be hard. I'm going to do it. And when the, when the hard times come, because I know that the firm foundation I have is in the word of the Lord, I will be able to be steadfast and stable because the Lord is steadfast and stable. What would it look like for us to be strengthened in our difficulties by God's laws, giving us hope in the middle of the turmoil? Our lives are meant to be gathered together as Christians, to come here on a Sunday, to meet in your homes and groups, gathered together for encouragement. Our lives are meant to be growing in Christ, like we did last week, where it said, blessed are the ones whose streams are feeding them. The multiple streams of God's word are feeding them. They become like a tree that is alive and thriving and giving fruit. And then we go. Because where our tree is alive, because our lives are filled, we overflow with the goodness of God and people are brought to know Jesus because of the way we live. What would it be like for you to be defined like that? Therefore, go. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. Uh, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your hope that it embodies their everyday lives and, and that we have the ability to point back to you in all that we do in every single part of our life. And Lord, would you give us the uh, discipline in some words? Would you give us the courage? Would you convict us in other places where we've started to question what it means to follow you? Yeah, but I don't want to do that, we say. Lord, would you stop us from that? May we obey you the first time. May we find hope in the midst of our troubles and that when we go through what we go through in everyday lives, people can look at us and say, why are you so hopeful? It's because our hope is someplace else. Our hope is on you. And Lord, may this shape our lives so that people recognize your goodness with us. In your name we pray. Amen.